You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We're with us last week. We started a series looking at this topic of work. Specifically, last week we engaged the first two chapters of Genesis and we dug into this idea that work is inherently a good endeavor. I mean, the very first verse of the Bible tells us that God himself is a worker. And then as we saw by the end of chapter one, we discover that humanity was created in the image of God to be workers as well. More than that, humanity wasn't just created to be workers. Humanity was intentionally, specifically created to oversee creation, to steward it, and to play a vital role of co-contributor to creation. In other words, God invites us to play. God invites us into his activity and says, hey guys, have fun with it. And why this matters is because that means inherently, at the end of the day, whatever we do through our work, be it our typical nine to five job, to the errands we run, to the work we do around the house, all of it was intended and therefore can and should be viewed as a God-honoring action. In other words, fundamentally, and this is kind of the whole theme of this series, work is worship. Work is a good thing, it's a God-honoring activity, and through it, we can view it as an act of worship. Now, I don't know if your mind works this way or if I'm just sick and twisted like this, but my mind immediately goes to the negative. And I can't help but ask this next question, and that is is this. If work is good, if work is part of life as God intended it to be, then why is it that work is often so frustrating? So painful, so difficult, so discouraging. Why does it often feel so meaningless? Or to be more precise, why is it that work is such a four-letter word? Do you know what I mean? Huh? See, here's the thing. We've all had jobs that we love. We've all had jobs we love, but we've also all had jobs that just suck the life out of us that we dread, that we don't want to do, that we don't want to get up. And so what's up with that? We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created work to be this good, life-giving endeavor. And yet that doesn't match my reality. It doesn't match many of our realities. So where's the disconnect? Well, the simple answer is this. The Bible doesn't start at, stop at Genesis 2. In fact, as the story continues, specifically as we flip into Genesis chapter 3, as we're going to do today, we quickly discover that God's good system became corrupted. This thing called sin enters the picture, and sin has this ability to infect everything it touches, and we're told that once sin enters the picture, all of creation is never the same. As I said, I want to look at this with you. And so I invite you to open up with me to Genesis chapter 3 today. It is on page 2 of your pew Bibles. um, Or if you open up a Bible app, it's, again, the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis, first book of the Bible. It's pretty easy to find. I'll I'll just tell you that. Chapter 2, 
or page two of Genesis. Now, if you haven't read Genesis three in a while, or you've never read Genesis three, I have to say this chapter is gold. Because not only does this chapter tell us why and how everything fell apart, but it also, through this one chapter, we get the best definition of what sin is, and more importantly, why we as humans are perpetually seduced by it. What it is about sin that is so attractive. And so we're going to look at that this morning. But I will say, I was looking at this and I realized in order to fully understand the ideas of Genesis 3, we need to back up a few verses into chapter 2. It kind of sets the scene for chapter 3. So we're going to look right at Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. So all you have to do is kind of put your head up a little bit. And you're going to see these verses, but we'll also throw them on the screen for you. Because we're told right after Adam gets done naming the animals in Genesis 2, he says this, or this happens. If I can get there. There we go. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, uh, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. When the man saw her, he said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. And this right here is the reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then it sums up all of Genesis 1 and 2 with this one statement. Adam and his wife were both naked. They were vulnerable, and they felt no shame in front of each other. This point in the story, life is good, church. You need to understand, at this point in the story, things are exactly as God intended it. They are in perfect relationship with each other. Adam and Eve have purpose. Hormones are clearly flying off the page, and they are enjoying the goodness of God. Unfortunately, as we said, as soon as you flip over to chapter 3, everything falls apart. I'm going to keep reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said this to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now I would love to go a little deeper into this, but just notice the confusing nature of this sentence. It's just, it's mind-boggling. But the woman has to correct him. No, God didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. We're allowed to eat from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. To which the serpent responds, oh, you're not going to die. Not certainly, anyways. For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. She ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. And there you have it, the first sin. Guys, from this point forward, everything in the story changes, but... Before we get there, I want to ask you, did you catch what the temptation behind the sin was? 
So we all know what the sin is. They, they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. They rebelled. That's, that's pretty obvious. But did you catch the temptation? Did you catch the motivation behind the sin? Because the motivation is what really matters here in this story. I highlighted it for you in verse 5. The serpent actually pins it well. God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. The great temptation behind the fall, therefore, the great temptation behind original sin is the desire to be like God. It wasn't just that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. No, the real problem with their sin is that they chose to act on the belief that they somehow knew better than God. That they had the right to define morality. That they had the right to define what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. That they had the right to define what they do with their time, how they engage the world around them, what they do with their bodies. See, what happened is this. Instead of following, instead of trusting, instead of submitting to God's ways, Adam and Eve decided to blaze their own trail. God said, I created you. I wired you to work this way. All you have to do to flourish is do this. That's it. Have fun. And they said, yeah, we're going to go this way. They just walked away from God. And church, this morning, I just have to ask you, when you consider all the stupid things you do, all your sinful behavior, can it be traced to the exact same root cause? At the end of the day, isn't it because deep down you were convinced you knew better? You were convinced deep down that you had better thoughts than, you know, your parents or everybody else around you, that you knew more than the world, that you knew more than God. And so you told people, who are you to tell me how I spend my time? Who are you to tell me what I can't and can't do with my money, what I can't and can't do with my body? Who are you to tell me how I engage the world around me? Guys, we all do this. The Bible just defines it as playing God. We can dress it up however we want, but at the end of the day, when we sin, we play God. We are convinced we know better than God. And the problem is, and you all know this, as soon as we walk away from God, whenever we do the opposite of what God wired us to do, whenever we do the opposite of what we were created to do, it unleashes a torrent of consequences. It hurts us. It hurts those around us. It just has this rippling effect in the world. And in Adam and Eve's case, this rippling effect not only tore apart their marriage, but it had even further wider implications for all of humanity. Look at what happens to their marriage. This is one of my favorite passages in this section of chapter 3, is when God shows up after they do this, God asks them, what did you do? To which they say this, the man said, oh, it wasn't me. It was the woman, that woman you put here, God. It wasn't my choice. You put her in here. She gave me the fruit. Yeah, I, I, I ate it, but it was the woman's fault. Then God turns to the woman. What is it that you have done? She goes, oh, I, well, the man already blamed me. It wasn't the man. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. See, you've already got discord being sown in the midst of this disruption in the created order. They were once naked and unashamed in each other's presence. They were vulnerable. Now they've turned on each other. They're throwing each other as fast as they can under the bus. And it doesn't stop there. 
As we're told, God goes on to further explain the consequences of their actions. And we're told that because of this, women will not only have pain in childbirth, but also we're told, as God kind of elaborates to Adam, everything in life is going to get harder. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit from the tree, I commanded you not to eat. This is the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Guys, just notice as you read over this, the stark shift between the end of chapter 2 and what's being described here. Adam and Eve are now covered in shame. They're at odds with each other. What was once a life-giving activity, caring for the garden specifically, or just work in general, has become a painful toil. And how do we make sense of this? Let's simply put, actions have consequences. In this case, when Adam and Eve decided to play God rather than follow God, they took a divergent path. They walked away from him. They stepped into the weeds, however you want to describe this. And they stepped out on uncharted terrain. They walked away from God, and they took the rest of us with them. And their decisions had massive consequences for all of humanity. If you're familiar with Genesis, it's at this point in the story that we find sin not only enters the picture, but also death, also pain. And there's not just those major areas. All of God's good created world gets chewed up and spit out at the end of the day. All of it. And so even the seemingly mundane, everyday, ordinary activities become a painful toil. And this is right here, is why we need to understand work is often so frustrating. Work is often so discouraging, so painful, so meaningless feeling. It's the opposite of worshipful. It's the opposite of joyful. It's the opposite of life-giving. It's life-sucking. But again, we need to understand this was not God's intention. This was not the plan. The plan is clear at the end of Genesis 2. The problem is we blew up the plan. This is a consequence of sin. The world as we know it is a consequence of us saying, God, we know better than you. I know what I'm doing. Get out of my way. And now we get this. Now, the good news is this, and I want you to hear this on me. Hear me on this. The good news is this. It is possible for us to jump back onto the other path. We don't have to continue walking away. In fact, this is the primary reason Jesus came in the first place. One of my favorite passages comes out of John chapter 10. It's verse 10. It says this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief is the serpent. The thief comes to derail you from what God intended for you. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, that you might have life to the full. We here at Grace define that as flourishing. 
God, Jesus specifically came so that you and I can hop off this wayward, divergent path and somehow work our way back onto the path God created us for. See, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is the primary reason Jesus came. It wasn't about heaven and hell. That is such a gross oversimplification of the gospel. Jesus didn't come just to rescue you from hell so you can do whatever you want for 60, 70, 80 years. That wasn't the plan. No, the reason Jesus came was to directly assault the effects of sin on humanity. And he does this not only through his teaching, not only through the life that he lives and models for us, but most poignantly through his conquest of death. When Jesus goes to the grave, he shows that the greatest consequence of our sin, death, does not win in the end. That he conquers the grave. That he conquers this idea that life is just ending. No, no, no. Jesus says, I have that. But he doesn't even stop there. As we looked at when we looked at the Gospel of John, Jesus promises that after he conquers the grave, he will send his Holy Spirit And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that he then enables us to experience this life he offers. He enables us to walk from one path to the other. Because we know we can't do this on our own. Sure, every now and then we get lucky and we cross it. But consistently doing that, that's outside my power. But Jesus expressly says that's why he came. And this is what we talk about. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he is offering this path correction, this course correction, and it will impact not just your eternal relationship with him, but it'll also impact your relationships with each other. It'll impact the way you view yourself. It'll impact the way you care for the environment. It'll impact the way you care for your children. It'll impact your marriages because Jesus came to redeem all aspects of creation. And so specifically in the context of work, as we're talking about in this series, we need to understand that that is also something God is in the business of redeeming. And here's how we do it. You and I can get back onto the path God intended for us. We can truly merge back onto this when we understand the truth of Scripture that Jesus has come to enlighten us with. And that is this. We need to understand that God uniquely wired you for a purpose. In other words, we need to reclaim the garden. We need to go back to the imagery of chapters 1 and 2 that you were uniquely wired for a specific purpose. And when we can stop fighting our wiring and we can start living into who God created us to be, we can then and only then begin to actually live as God intended us once again. We can merge our paths. In other words, If we're ever going to get back on this path that God intended for us, specifically in the context of work, we need to stop viewing work in terms of the jobs that we do and start reclaiming work through the lens of calling. Through the lens of calling. Now, I'm going to unpack this idea of calling a lot more next week because I know it's kind of a loaded term. Today, the one thing I want to help you do is I want to help you understand the difference between a job and a calling, okay? Because here's the thing. If we're ever going to figure out how to merge back onto this path that we keep talking about, we need to understand there is a distinct difference between a job and a calling. Very often, we confuse the two. So simply put, a job is just what you do to make money. 
A job is what you do to survive. A job is what you do to provide food for your families. That's a job. But a calling? A calling is that unique call on your life. What God uniquely wired and created you alone to do and contribute to his work of ongoing work of creation. In other words, specifically in America, a job is something we typically choose, whereas a calling is something we have to unearth. We have to excavate. We have to discover. A calling is not always obvious. A calling usually takes some work to try and figure out. Now, sometimes a job can kind of overlap with your calling, right? It can be in line with your calling. But more often than not, people's jobs are not in line with their calling. More often than not, the jobs we work are just what we do because it's how we put money or how we put food on the table. It's not our passion. It's not what we were made to do. It's not what we are wired to do. But when our jobs are in sync with our calling, I mean, it's so awesome. And it's not just awesome for us. It's not just a delight for us. Guys, when a person's job matches their calling, it's like the whole world around them gets better. Let me give you an example of this I think you can all relate to. Have you all been out to dinner before and had that waiter or waitress who was clearly called to customer service? And I, I mean, like, like, they just love their job. They loved caring for people. They loved making sure. They loved their job. They loved their restaurant they were working for. They loved their coworkers. And so as you show up with your family, it doesn't matter what you stepped off, you know, out of the car, you're fighting with each other, whatever it is. When this waiter or waitress comes up to your table and starts serving you, they naturally put you at ease. They have no problem with your special requests whatsoever or your obnoxious children. They are just with you, and they are there to care for you. They're sharing their menu ideas. I bet they made your dining experience amazing. And I would also argue that when it came time to write that tip, with joy, you overtip them. It was the easiest thing. You're like, this was great. I love this person. But now flip side. Have you ever had a waiter or waitress who was clearly not called to customer service? <laughs> When the tip came, how hard was it to write that tip? I bet you struggled over that. It's not just waiters or waitresses. Think to teachers. I imagine all of you can look back at your life and think of teachers that were clearly called to that profession, who loved children, were passionate about their subject, and had this incredible ability to communicate their knowledge in a way that you could grasp. They probably had a profound impact on you. And yet on the other side, we can all think of people that we want to go back and directly tell them when they're 20 years old, please, dear God, don't go into teaching. <laughs> Another example, how many of you, especially in this Boeing-centric context in which we live, have ever met a true engineer? And I mean somebody called to engineering. And you know what I mean? They're the type of person that when they go home, all they do all day, every day is problem solve or tinker or tear something apart and think about how do I improve it? It's all they think about, right? Even the stupid jokes they tell only make sense to other engineers. <laughs> You've all met this person. Now imagine if that engineer took a job as a preschool art teacher. Could they do it? 
Yeah, probably. Would they be miserable? Yes. Would every other child in the world be miserable? Yes. When our job is not aligned with our calling, when our job is not aligned with our calling, it sucks the life out of us. But when our job is aligned with our calling, when the two match up, it's a beautiful thing. Even more than that, it's a delight not only to the person who lives it, but it has this rippling positive net effect in everybody else around them. So here's the thing. I believe all of us, all of us, can experience God's call in our life. I believe all of us can begin to align our work with the way God wired us to work. Now, I know there's at least one of you thinking this. Oh, you're just, you know, sharing the idealistic musings of another millennial. Okay? (laughs) And I'm going to cut you off at the pass here because I'm fully aware I am fully aware that for the vast majority of history and for the vast majority of the world today, this idea that you can somehow choose a job is nothing more than a pipe dream. In fact, I'm going to push you even further and say, I don't believe for anybody who's not middle-class American or above, this idea that you can somehow choose your job to match your calling is really nothing more than an idealistic fantasy. It's just not how the vast majority of the world works. It's why I explicitly said there is a difference between a job and a calling. Because we can align our work beyond what we do at our typical nine to five with how God wired us. So you may not be called to a career shift at this point in your life. And that may just be because you're stubborn and not actually going to listen to the will of God. But hey, that's between you and him. Or it could be because, you know what, no, God actually has you where you are for a specific purpose, and he is working good in that purpose, and it doesn't make sense for you to leave that. There's call is such this multifaceted, rich thing. But even more than that, if we believe that God has uniquely wired each and every one of us in a unique, individual way, and we believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to start walking as God intended us to walk, Is it not worth a few minutes to just stop and dream about what your calling actually is and how to better align your call with the way you're wired, with what you do on a regular basis? Well, I think so, and we're going to do that this morning. So here's what we're going to do. While everybody's calling is going to look a little different in your life, everybody's call looks a little different in your life, we can all use the same discernment questions to help better understand calling. And so this morning, I I wrote down some questions that came from a book. It's called Garden City by Pastor John Mark Homer. I think he's a pastor up in Portland. And he wrote these questions. And so I included them in your bulletin. They're on the back of this week's Car Talk questions. Remember the whole idea of the Car Talk is to help you connect what we do in here with what we do out there. So you can take those and chew on them at home. But if you open up to the inner part, you're going to see questions to help you discern your call. And I think these are questions that are worth chewing on. And so this is the part of the sermon where it's just going to be about reflection. So we'll throw some of them up and we'll take them as we go. So just think about this. What would you do with your life if money wasn't an issue? Have you ever stopped and just dreamt about this? I'll tell you, every time the lotto gets over $350 million, I drop my two bucks. And I spend 15, 20 minutes on the ride home dreaming about what I would do if I didn't have to work. 
The irony is, I think I would still be doing what I do. We would just have more money in the church budget. Um, <laughs> but what would you do? What would you do? Another question is, what are you good at? And also, what are you not good at? This is a helpful question for discerning call. And I'll tell you, especially if you are young or you are early in your career, this was the best advice somebody gave me. You should be focusing on trying to discover what you are good and what you are bad at. You should be experimenting. You should be trying. You should be failing. Don't pigeonhole yourself into this set thing of what you've always done because you don't know what you're good at. You've got to explore. And the truth is, many of you in this room who've been doing life for 60, 70, 80 years, you also need to give yourself permission to try and experiment and fail. And here's the thing. If you fail, great. You could cross something off your list and be like, God has clearly not called me to that right now. <laughs> but why not try? Another good question. What does your world need? When you look around at the world around you, and whether that's your, your circles or even the larger world, what breaks your heart? What do you see as a problem and say, man, somebody needs to do something about that? There's this story in the book of Nehemiah, I don't know if you're familiar with it, where Nehemiah gets word that the city of Jerusalem has been torn down and it's open to exposure from outside of tax. And at the time, Nehemiah is living in Persia as the cupbearer to the king. But for months, he just stews on this information about his hometown, and it breaks his heart. And eventually, after months of thinking about it and not being able to shake it, Nehemiah does something crazy. He approaches the king of Persia and asks for a major job change, something completely out of his career trajectory. He's a cupbearer, and now he asks to be the wall builder of Jerusalem. It's a major career change, but for Nehemiah, it was the greatest problem in the world, and he couldn't shake it. That was part of God's call on Nehemiah's life. Another question, does what you want to do make the world a more garden-like place? Garden-like in the sense of going back to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideas. Does it make the world more as God intended it? We all know there's jobs out there that are not what God intended for us to be doing, Right? And a good rule of thumb, if you're trying to figure out, is this a job that's God-honoring or something God does not want to do, is this. If it brings life, if it builds people up, if it brings hope, if it, you know, brings peace into the world, odds are that's of God. Whereas if it sows discord, if it tears down other people, if it devalues, if it brings poverty or chaos, probably not of God. But does what you want to do, these things in your heart that you want to do, is this in line with God's will? Does it make the world a garden-like place? Another one is, what are the open doors in your life? And I know some of you hate this question. But the idea behind this question is this. Are you even aware of the opportunities in front of you? See, this is very similar to the whole we get pigeonholed in what we're good and what we're bad at. We don't even look around us at the opportunities available to us. We're so fixated on what we're doing that we miss it. I will tell you the single greatest way I have learned to affirm my call is by looking for other jobs. And I look for other jobs all the time. All the time. Not only has this allowed me to be able to say, you know what, I never would have thought to do this. And I would go to Pastor Chris and say, hey, can I, can I do this? What would it look like if I tried this? And he's like, yeah, let's try it. Or no, that's a stupid idea. You know, 
But it's also allowed me, as I sit and I reflect on this, to be like, you know what? No, I am passionate about this. I am called here. I'm not ready to leave yet. Like, it's not, there's not the call yet. Look for jobs. And this isn't just a young man's game. There's a lot of you who are retired. You could still look at other jobs out there, not because you need the paycheck, but maybe it's something fun to do, or even more importantly, you can look at career or volunteer opportunities and be like, you know what? I'd like to try that. I've never done finger painting or claymation or whatever. Like, try it. Who knows? We can teach you the iPad. Okay. Another one. <laughs> what is God blessing? Another one to put it this, another way of phrasing this is, where do you see the greatest returns for your efforts? Or to stick with the whole business now, where are you seeing the greatest returns of investment? All right? And what would it look like for you to lean into that? How do you continue to pursue that more? Another one is, what are people you know saying? See, call is always, always affirmed by other people. A good example of this, let's say some weirdo comes in off the street and says, I am called to be the pastor of this church. You are all going to look at him and go, you are a nut job. Who are you? Go away. Because when we, designed, when we picked a pastor, we picked a pastor. You had to call me. Remember, you had a vote. I was awkwardly standing outside being like, dear God, don't let me lose my job today. <laughs> You have to call. And so here's the thing. That call is no different for you. You should be able to ask the people who know you best and love you most, hey, what do you think about this in my life? What do you think I should be doing? Is this a good idea? Do you think I'd be a good fit for X, Y, Z? Allow them to speak into that. And then lastly, what's the spirit stirring in your heart? Now, this may seem like an odd question, but again, come back to this idea of Genesis where we have walked away from the path God intended for us. Very often, the Spirit is calling us to something that we wouldn't normally pursue on our own because it doesn't always make sense on paper. The Spirit very well could be calling you to a move. The Spirit very well could be calling you to a complete career shift, something you would have never thought to do on your own. But the truth is, if we're going to admit that we don't know everything, we don't have all of life figured out, then we need to stop and slow down and say, Lord, what have you got for me today? Where are you leading in this area? What would it look like for me to follow you? And again, just see what happens. See what happens. How am I doing? Oh, I got plenty of time. <laughs> so a couple other reflections. They're not on the screen, but these are things that I was just thinking about. If you're an employer or you're a supervisor, what would it look like if you began to see your job, your primary responsibility, as making sure that you are fostering the call of the people you serve, the people you oversee? What would it look like if your primary function every day wasn't just about making sure they get the job done? What was about was about making sure they were living into the fullness of who God created them to be. Because here's the thing, we as Christians may understand that there is more to life than this, but there's a lot of people out there who've never heard the good news, who've never heard there's a God who wired them in a unique way that is your job. And you don't have to be a freak about it. Okay, I believe Jesus has a unique call on you. Like, no. You could speak to the honest fact, though. Of, hey, man, like, as I look at you, I, I just feel like God created you or I wired you to do something completely different. Or let me try something. Or, I mean, honestly, think about this. In your job, what would it look like? Maybe it's just giving them different opportunities in the workplace to be like, you know what, I feel like your job would really, your, your skill set, the way you're wired, you would really try this. Why don't you try it? If you fail, that's okay. We're going to try something else. And again, you make it clear to them, I'm not in the business of firing you. 
I'm in the business of making sure you become the man or woman God created you to be. I will say this is Pastor Chris's all-time greatest strength as a boss. As a boss, he has come alongside everybody who works for him, and his, his constant motivation is trying to make sure we grow into the man or woman God created us to be. And so often he will push us into things or he'll allow us to experiment. Often he'll, he'll watch this. We fail a lot. But that's because he allows us to continue to do it. And I'll tell you, as an employee, not only does this motivate me to get the job that I am hired for done, but it also excites me to go to work. It excites me to work for a guy like that. And it not only has built massive allegiance to that man, but even more importantly, it's built massive allegiance to the organization because I don't feel like I am just stuck. I feel like I'm genuinely in a place where I can grow and I can flourish and I can be the man God created me to be. What would it look like for you as an employer to do that for your employees? Another one, for those of you who are retired, realistically or idealistically, maybe, you are freed from the burden of having to work to put food on the table, right? You're no longer having to go to a job that just provides for your family. Ideally, you're free from that, which means ideally, you are then free to live fully into who God created you to be. By all means, rest, vacation, travel. By all means, live it up. But recognize you were not created to solely rest. You weren't created to do nothing. You have a specific purpose and a specific call. And if you are ever going to flourish in this life, if you are ever trying to figure out why am I still so discontent? Why do I feel so bored? What is going on? This isn't the life I want. Lord, take me now. If you're praying those things, Odds are, you're not living into God's call for your life. And so instead of brushing off these questions as a young man's game, I want you to pull them out and consider them as well. Because I believe God has you here for a purpose. Now, I'll also admit, though, for those of you who are retired, I know many of you have lost the physical or mental faculties to be able to continue to do the things you are most passionate about. Maybe your hands are unsteady or whatever it is. And I, I personally can't imagine what that's going to be like. That would be so frustrating. But just because you've lost the thing that you're most passionate about doesn't mean you still can't do something. You still have value. You still have worth. And God has you here for a reason. So you should continue to pursue those good things and ask, Lord, what is it you want for me? The question I want to close with, church, is this. Are we going to continue to think we know better than God? Are we going to continue to keep fighting his good intentions for us? Or are we willing to begin to dream about what a life in sync with his call for our life might look like and mean for us? Are we willing to admit maybe we don't know everything? Are we willing to admit maybe he does have me here for a reason? Are we willing to admit that maybe he has me here to help others do the same? Are we willing to help others, therefore, fully step into who God created them to be, even if that means my company takes a little hit? Even if that means I may have to push them out the door and say, you know what, like, God is calling you to this. It's going to cost me to do this, but I believe in you. Because here's the thing. Regardless of your age, Regardless of your current life stage or your current career trajectory, God has a call on your life. God has a plan. 
And he wants to see you and the world around you flourish. So I guess my simple thing that I'm going to ask you to do this week is this. Dream a little. Just dream a little. Say, Lord, what would it look like to live into my calling? How could I do that? What are some actual practical steps I could take this week into just, you know, putting my toe a little more into that? And then just watch what happens. Odds are it can't be any worse than what you're doing right now. It can only get better from here. But the even greater upside is this. If we all began to live into the call God had for our life, and as we talked about, when we're in sync with our work and our call, it has this net positive effect, not just on our lives, but on the world around us. Just think what that would do for this room, for our small spheres of influence. We would truly begin to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the hope of creation. But it starts by us taking this one aspect of our life and submitting it on the altar of God and saying, Lord, I admit I don't know best. What do you have for me? Let's do that. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for who you are and who you made us to be. You are a good God. And Lord, we desire to live fully into who you created us to be the good purposes you have for us. But Lord, I recognize there's in the midst of this fear because it bucks everything we've ever been taught as children. It pushes against everything society continues to slam down our throat. But Lord, at the end of the day, we all itch for more. And so I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would come and reveal to us with clarity what it would look like to better align ourselves with you. And through us, may this world continue to be a better place. In Jesus' name. Amen.